man told me one time, he said, you Baptists put me to sleep with your worship. <laughs> if that man is here, would you please come forward at this time? <laughs> Great song of praise. Don't you love the, the scripture additions to that and the uh, words of praise? Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. Psalm 34.3, I think that is. And Marilyn was so anxious to get that verse out, wasn't she? I got tickled of that because she, where is she? She left. <laughs> Did she feel bad? Oh, she's gone to Sunday school. Okay. She'll be back. She's a Sunday school teacher. Well, I was worried about her. I turned around, didn't see her. I wondered where she'd gone. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation 19, and we'll continue in our series of messages, our expositions on Revelation. This chapter contains uh, what we will touch next week, the Battle of Armageddon, and uh, a number of things. We've already taken two themes from this, but now let's take the first nine verses, verse by verse. After these things, I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and honor and power to the Lord our God. For true and righteous are his judgments, because he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. And he has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. Again, they said, Hallelujah. And her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all you his servants and those who fear him, both small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters, and as the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the fine linen is the righteousness, says, the diakamata, the, the plural, righteousness says, righteous acts of the saints. And he said to me, write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. What a chapter. I, I call this message the great hallelujah chorus because four times, four times, there wells up from the corners of all of glory, hallelujah, praise our God. Four great hallelujahs. Do you remember Aesop's fables? One of my favorites is that of the dog who has a bone in his mouth and he's going down a trail and crosses a bridge and sees the creek. And he looks down into the water and what does he see? He sees a dog with a bone. And he thinks, I want that bone that dog has. And he dies for that bone. 
And when he hits the water, only then does he realize that he was seeing his own reflection and he lost his bone in trying to grab someone else's. He missed the reflection. You ever heard that one? That's one of my favorite Aesop's fables. Ladies and gentlemen, all creation was made to reflect the glory of God. You and I are in the Imago Dei in order that we might reflect the glory of God. In God's creation, for every action, there is a reaction. For every sowing, there is a what, class? A reaping. And for every image, there is a reflection. And you and I, made in the image of God, are made to reflect His glory. And praise is one of the ways that we reflect the glory of God. Our singing this morning was not preparation for worship in the message. It is worshiping God. Because when we praise God, we are reflecting God's glory. We are reflecting it back to each other. When we praise, we are speaking acting, reflecting the glory of the image of a holy and a powerful and a good God. We encourage each other. Frankly, I'm encouraged. Are you? How many of you get encouraged when you, when you reflect this glory? Isn't it great to praise? I mean, I get built up by praising. About three weeks ago, I opened my mail one day and I received this letter. And I'm going to read it, but you won't know who it is. Dear Mark, this is a letter of heartfelt gratitude. I am a 36-year-old mother of two. When I meet people and am getting acquainted with them, I usually find out what their church affiliation is. Many attend Calvary. When they say this, I find myself saying, I grew up at Calvary. Not, I grew up in Winston-Salem, but I grew up at Calvary. What a precious revelation this was to me. I find myself praising and thanking God for the blessing that Calvary was in my life. I did grow up there from a very young teenager to young adulthood. Calvary provided me with a priceless foundation that I have carried with me all these years. As the senior pastor, I would like to thank you for recognizing the importance of the youth in the church. You all provided me and many others with a godly place, with loving Christ-like role models in which we could grow up. We had great fun and social activities that were healthy and wholesome and biblical teaching on our level in areas that pertain to our lives. Every person who worked with the youth truly cared, listened, and supported us. It was a safe haven of nurturing, love, encouragement, and support. We were always given uh, sound uh, scriptural advice 
through so many of the difficult stages of growing up. Words cannot begin to express how very blessed I was and am for having this foundation. So many times we go about our Father's work planting seeds. Sometimes we see the fruits of our labor, and other times we do not get to witness it. One day in heaven, I am sure there will be many like me that you will see, and how Calvary's ministry to the youth played such an important role in our lives. Now I am raising my own children and will provide them with the same foundation that I received. And in this letter was a $100 bill. That always rejoices a pastor's heart. You, can, you know that. This gift I am sending is not a large one, but just a small seed that I would like to turn around and plant into the ministry that made such a difference in my life. Isn't that great? Amen. May her tribe increase. <laughs> I know that the Lord can take this gift and multiply it beyond what I could begin to comprehend. Therefore, I plant this with thanksgiving. Notice the theme of this letter. With thanksgiving and faith to your youth ministry, God bless you and all those who give of their time to the youth, a truly blessed sister in Christ. Isn't that a great letter? You know what? When she got through praising the Lord and thanking God, you know what I felt like? I felt good all over. Praise reflects the glory of God and in the process gives tremendous encouragement to the body of Christ. You and I are made to reflect his moral and spiritual glory by the way we live. Confession reflects our fallenness. Repentance reflects our fallenness. But praise, which gives glory to God, reflects the moral and spiritual image of the Father in us. Now, there are four elements to this passage we must not miss. The first is praise. The second is a marriage. And the third is the wife. And the fourth is the called. Here they are. The first is praise. And notice four hallelujahs. First, there is the hallelujah of the great multitude, verse 1. Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. Secondly, the great multitude says it again. This time they add something, verse 3. Hallelujah, and her smoke rises up forever and ever. They are celebrating in verse 2 by the first hallelujah, the judgment of God, the punishment of God, the vengeance. Underline the word. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants shed by her. So they are giving praise that the Father has brought judgment on Babylon the Great, representing the religious system, and Babylon the Great, representing the commercial system in the prior chapters. And here is praise that God's holiness is now vindicated. We don't rejoice in the sin of others, but we do rejoice that a holy God ultimately brings justice on this world. This is a day of mourning. This country has suffered a terrible blow to its safety and its security and to its spiritual psyche in the bombing in Oklahoma City. It has been an awful thing. And I'm here to tell you, folks, that the purpose of law is not just to restrain evil. And the purpose of law 
is not just to, to uh, bring justice and vengeance, but the purpose of law, the book of Revelation reminds us in at least six places, the purpose of law is to establish a sense of justice and rightness and wrong, which is why Newsweek has a full edition, Whatever Happened to Shame. And if you want to make a statement and you don't like the taxes and you don't like the government, you don't make a statement by taking at least 70 lives of innocent people and children. There are ways to make a statement. Shame on America. When in the name of right we can do such an awful thing, God will take vengeance. Justice shall be established when Christ comes. But it is the task of law and the church, that's why we preach the Word of God, to establish a sense of justice and righteousness in the land on God's behalf now, today. We do it. That's why we take our stand. They're praising God because the power and the penalty and the presence of sin has been ultimately defeated. The smoke rises up forever and ever, indicating this is a permanent, final termination of sin. Do I need to remind you that when you trust Christ, you are saved from the, power, the penalty of sin? And you have provision to be saved from the power of sin? But now, finally, ultimately, in this end time, in John's prophetic vision, God's people are saved from the presence of sin. This week, I got the news in another state that a long-term friend of mine, pastor of a large church, a godly man I've respected has confessed to a long-standing adulterous relationship and his church will be informed this week, today, even as we speak, which is why I can say what I'm saying. My heart has been terribly, tragically broken because I know the devil will make such hay out of this. And I want to say to you young people, listen to me, listen to me. When you're young and sin gets a hold in your life, it destroys your future. And to the adults, I want to say, the older you get, when you sin, it destroys not only your future, but it destroys sin, has the awful capacity to destroy your past. Think of the testimony of a pastor for 30 years, destroyed because of sin. And any of us who thinks that we're beyond that must look like the Apostle Paul and say there, but for the grace of God, go I. Oh, God, build a hedgerow around Tom Mahaffey. Build a hedge around Tom Carley. Build a hedge around Don Mann. I pray that for our staff because sin has this terrible capacity to destroy our past as well as our futures. And young people, there are a thousand folks in this sanctuary this morning who if they could take back a bad decision 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 35 years ago, they would do it in a heartbeat. Amen? 
But thank God there is coming a day when the presence of sin will be eliminated. We are saved from the penalty. We are saved from the power. But the presence of sin is still with us. And it will be with us until Jesus comes and never think that you have conquered it. Just the time when you think you've conquered it. It's like riding a Harley Davidson. About the time you think you've got it, it'll get you. Where's, where's Bob Spears? Where's Ken Barnes? Where, where are my motorcycle riders? In fact, I told my wife I'd love to buy one the other day. I'd love to have a Harley. Wouldn't you like to have a Harley? I'm telling you, the thrill of all that engine under you, pushing you down the highway, free spirit. Take your shirt off. Go to South Carolina and ride without a helmet if you're a daredevil. So they say hallelujah. The hallelujah because the smoke rises up, the presence of sin is eliminated. Now watch verse 4. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne. And now they say it, amen and hallelujah. Now let's look at those two words for a minute. Hallelujah. Go back to 1 Chronicles chapter 16. The first time it occurs in the Bible is in 1 Chronicles 16.4 at the installation of the... Um, of the ark. And there in that installation of the ark, the word is used. It is Halle and uh, Jehovah. Praise God. Praise Jehovah. And literally in chapter 16, they brought the ark of God and set it in the midst of the tabernacle. And verse 2 when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people. Then verse 4, he appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord to commemorate, to thank, and uh, hallelujah the Lord God of Israel. To hallelujah the Lord God of Israel. That's the first appearance of hallelujah in the Bible. And ladies and gentlemen, if you want to say a word of praise, it is all right, even in a staid, traditional Baptist church like ours. Try it. Say hallelujah. How does it sound? Hallelujah. Say it again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise Jehovah. And so that's what they say. All the four and twenty elders representing the people of God in glory fell down and worshiped God who sat on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. Now what about Amen? Let's go back to uh, Numbers uh, 5.22. Now I want you to look at this for a moment because there's a lot of, uh, a lot of wondering about the, the word Amen. It is uh, an important word. And uh, we find that in Numbers 5, in separation, dealing with separation, it is a word of great affirmation and affirmation of truth. Look, verse 20, if a woman who's committed adultery has gone astray while under her husband's authority, 
And if you have defiled yourself in some other man, then your husband is lame with you. The priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, and the Lord makes your thigh rot in your belly as well. And may this water that causes the curse, when you drink this water, bitter water, go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. And the woman, in order to give affirmation, says, Amen. Now there's the beginning of Amen. Now, we like to say amen. It's the same word Jesus uses when he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Amen, amen, I say unto you. A double affirmation of truth. Now, in the book of Revelation, when they're giving praise over God's judgment and the ultimate deliverance from sin, it is hallelujah and amen. Praise Jehovah, it is done. Praise Jehovah, it is truth. And it is a solemn vow of truth. And finally, in verse 6, I, or verse 5, a voice came from the throne. Is this the voice of God, perhaps? Praise our God. Or maybe it's the voice of one of the cherubim at the throne, since it's our God. All you, his douloi, his bondservants. These are those who had served out their servitude of seven years under the law. The word came from. And they chose to stay with their master. These are they who praise God, who have chosen to serve him. They're not Christians because they were forced to. They chose to be his servants. And when all creation, verse 6, gave praise, it was the voice of a great multitude, the sound of many waters, the sound of mighty thunderings, and they said, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Hallelujah. 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 Praise always reflects the glory of God. And when I look at that, what's going on in heaven, I want to come back and say, Holy Spirit, what in the world can anybody see of your glory in my life? Here are the Levites who lead us in hallelujah, 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 hallelujahing God. There, I got it. <laughs> I wanted to make a verb. Here are the Levites who lead us in hallelujah. I want to know, how do you reflect the glory of God when you're, when you're singing praise? How do I reflect the glory of God? How do you do it, Johnny? How do you do it, Ermie? How do I reflect the glory of God? I have been appointed, I have been called to come to worship and a hallelujah and amen, the Lord our God, His character and His truth. And all the people said amen. Mark it down. Number one, the first element is praise. And praise reflects his glory. You have no idea of the power of praise. The next time your husband is criticizing you, you just start singing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. He'll think you're crazy. He'll probably call a counselor right away, but start praising God. The next time you're in a Sunday school meeting and somebody gets negative and critical and starts running other people down, you say, let's all stand and sing, praise God from whom all blessings flow. I'll tell you, it'll nip it in the bud. You cannot stay in the presence of praise and be negative and critical about other people in the work of God. Amen? Secondly, the second element is marriage. And so the Bible says that the reason for the praise 
is verse 7. Let us be glad, let us rejoice, and let us give him, what's the word, class? When we praise God, we always reflect his glory. I watch some of you. Some of you never open your mouth in a song service. And you say, you don't want me to, Pastor. If you heard me sing, I'd ruin everything. Well, brother, sister, open your mouth. A song service, a praise service is just like a bank. If you don't put anything in, you won't what? Get anything out. And I don't care what you sound like, the person next to you will drown you out to the glory of God. And if you can't sing, hum. And if you can't hum, whistle. And if you can't whistle, get out your comb, put some wax paper around it, but do something to the glory of God. <laughs> marriage is the reason. Let us be glad and rejoice, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And in some unique, beautiful, biblical way, this heavenly picture of the marriage of the Lamb reflects the glory of God. What is that? Why is that? Because in the body of Christ, a beautiful bride, holy and without blemish, without any blemish, blameless before God, is a beautiful, glorious thing to God. The church is always reflecting the glory of God. And sin always detracts from the glory of God in the body of the church. When the heavenly marriage is announced, finally it is, it is true. The bridegroom is Christ. The bride is the church. Don't you remember what the Bible says? Go back here, hold your hand here and go back to Matthew chapter 9. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 9? There is the, the great reference and we know Christ identifies himself the disciples came to him and said, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples, the disciples of John, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, what is that a reference to? Our Lord identifies himself as the bridegroom in the kingdom parables. And in chapter 11, you'll see it again. Verse 11, when he's, he's writing about John, he's speaking about John, who sent disciples in verse 3 and said, Are you the coming one or do we look for another? And Jesus said in verse 7, What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What did you expect out of John the Baptist, this great prophet? What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Wearing soft clothing in a king's house? What did you go out to see? A prophet? Yeah, I say, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face. John is not the bridegroom. He is the friend of the bridegroom. And he will prepare the way of the Messiah. Verse 11. Then Jesus said, Surely I say to you, among those born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, why would Jesus have said that? Because when you've been saved and you're in the body of Christ, you're the bride. John was the friend of the bridegroom. He's the best man at the wedding. 
He is the one who followed the bridegroom in marching, proceeding over to the bride's house where the marriage took place and then over to the marriage supper and celebrated the great wedding. But first there is the picture of the marriage, which is why John very clearly tells us that he is the friend of the bridegroom. Go again to John chapter 3 and look at this. I want you to catch this. John chapter 3, and what is it is said about John the Baptist? Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is fulfilled. And then he makes the great statement. He must increase, but I must decrease. Now, if praise reflects his glory, marriage reflects his faithfulness. In my marriage, I reflect the faithfulness of God who sets aside Israel in Hosea, but Israel is God's bride. The church is Christ's bride. But he says, I am wed to you forever, and he'll even recollect Israel. You know, I noticed that this week. I I get something on my mind. And uh, for instance, I'll think of a food I would like to eat. Does this ever happen to you in your marriage? I'll think of a food that I would like to eat. And I'll just throw it out to my wife. I'll say, how would you like some whatever? Now, my wife is a very forthright person. You never wonder where you stand with her. She's, she always tells me exactly what she thinks. There are no mind games, no fooling games. If she likes it, she likes it. If she doesn't, she'll tell you. And immediately, I, I've learned early in my marriage, I learned not to say we're going to have this. I say, how would you like this? And she'll let me know immediately. If I say spaghetti, she'll say, no, I do not want spaghetti. How would you like to have, no, I do not want a hamburger. And I've learned the things she doesn't like, and I've learned how to fish for the things she does like so that we can keep mind and will together because I value faithfulness to my wife as much as I value anything in my life or my ministry. 32 years in this church is not as important as 35 years with the same woman. Now, that's, to me, that's important. Because whatever your past, right now where you are, that is God's will, stay where you are and let your marriage reflect what every marriage in heaven and earth ought to reflect. It is the faithfulness of the Father who will never, ever lie to you or let you down. Amen. So if praise reflects his glory, everything in marriage should be reflective, even today, of the faithfulness of God. There's something else here. Next, in verse 9, he said to me, Write, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. Why? Because now, verse 8 it is granted to the wife to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, and the fine linen is the righteousnesses of the saints. The wife has made herself ready. The church is prepared. You are not right now ready for the marriage. 
Christ came at Calvary to make a proposal to you. And that proposal is now open. And to all who will accept Christ's offer of forgiveness and pardon, he will put you into the betrothed state. But there is the marriage and the celebration supper, which is coming still in the future. Don't lose the picture. The proposition has been made. The proposal has been made. And now the wife has made herself ready. Now there's one more thing you and I, as the saved of the body of Christ, must go through before the wife has made herself ready. Do you know what that is? It's the judgment seat of Christ. When Christ comes or we die, we'll stand at the judgment seat. Now hold your hand here. Go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, you will see the... The, the, uh, what it, you also see in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, by the way, you will see the, the uh, uh, judgment seat of Christ. Verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 5. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. I don't go to the judgment seat to find out if I'm saved. I wouldn't even be at the judgment seat if I'm not converted. But I go to the judgment seat to receive my rewards. And when I receive those rewards, those rewards will somehow be displayed in glory to the, to the bridegroom at the marriage when the wife has made herself ready. Now, two things happen to us as, as believers. First, there is positional justification that is a gift from God when I accept Christ. I am declared righteous. Romans 5.1, therefore, having been justified by faith, I am made righteous with Christ. It's exactly what happens when a man and a woman stand before a pastor and they're declared one and they take a vow. They are positionally united. Now, they have to work at that union the rest of their lives. Amen? Sometimes it's hard work. But they are positionally declared married. When I receive Christ in my heart, I am declared in a new legal relationship. But the positional is only one side of righteousness. There are the righteousnesses, the diakamota, which is mentioned here. And those are the external acts or the practical righteousness. And when I stand at the judgment seat of Christ, he examines my practical living. So I, when I stand at the marriage supper of the Lamb, at the wedding, the wife has made herself ready. We have a whole room back here filled with a sink and mirrors everywhere so that a bride can be helped to get herself all ready. She's got to get those eyebrows just right. The eyelashes have got to be curled just right. And if they aren't long enough, you put some extras on. At least I've, I've seen some. They look like windshield wipers to me when you see them in the store. Don't kiss a man with glasses with those things. He messes <laughs> lens up. But anyway, she gets her dress all ready. It's got to be spotless. There can't be any wrinkle. The church has now gone through its ministry phase, its probation phase, and it stands at the judgment seat. We have undergone the scrutiny of the judging eyes of Christ, and he has declared our righteousnesses either gold, silver, precious stone, or wood, hay, stubble. And if it's wood, hay, stubble, the judging eyes of Christ burn it away. I won't get any reward for the message I preached to impress you. I won't get any reward for the money I gave just because... 
I, I thought it would impress somebody. Whatever I have done for the glory of Christ, every Sunday school lesson, every witness, every act of kindness, those are the righteousnesses which display the glory and the faithfulness of God in the great time to come, the marriage supper, because the wife has made herself ready. So if praise reflects his glory and marriage reflects his faithfulness, uh, his uh, holiness, uh, his faithfulness rather, the bride reflects his holiness. The bride reflects his holiness. You know, that's a weird thing. I can't say this in the second service. But last Sunday night, my wife was tired of sin. Does sin get tired? And uh, I thought, sitting down here in that third row, you know how we did the families and the Lord's Supper last Sunday night? I looked at her and she looked as gorgeous as she has ever looked. What, what happens to a woman? Well, why is that? Have you ever, have you ever seen that, Eddie? I mean, there are times she, Melissa says, Eddie, oh, I just feel horrible. And you look at her and you say, there's never been anybody more beautiful in all the world than, than Melissa. You know, there's something about spiritual readiness that just changes us from the inside out. A godly woman can be ugly as a mule, but when she's holy, she is beautiful. She is beautiful. A bride reflects something about the husband. A man says, don't look at my wife. You look at my wife because I want her to reflect 35 years of investment of my life and my love and my prayer in her. And she is a woman of God that I love and I hold high because I want her to reflect my faithfulness to God through her. That is part of what Paul means when he says that the wife reflects the head in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. She reflects the glory of God. That is why, men, if you ignore your wife, you will pay for it someday. You can't ignore her. And we've done that to our discredit. You cannot ignore her. I must close. The fourth element in this passage is the called element. Verse 9 is the seventh beatitude of the book of Revelation. Right blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true sayings of God. There's the blessing. Now, who are the called? Oh, you go back and you're reminded of Jesus' great parables about go out. We're going to have a feast. Go out to the highways and byways and compel them to come in. I'll tell you, I believe that the guests are going to be headed by the Old Testament saints and the prophets. In fact, I think that's why Jesus said uh, about John the Baptist, he'll be a guest at the marriage supper. But see, he's not in the bride. Christ hadn't died yet. He couldn't be saved the way we're saved. The Holy Spirit didn't fall until Pentecost. John the Baptist had been beheaded by that time. But he'll be a guest, and he's called, and the Old Testament saints, and over here's Abraham, and over here is Moses, and there'll be guests at the marriage supper of the Lamb. But in this passage, all the universe and all of history and all of prophecy turns on what God has been doing in preparing a bride ready for his son, Jesus. I've got two wonderful daughters-in-law and two wonderful sons-in-law. 
I wish that I could have prepared. I'd love to have picked out the brides for my boys. Joan, would you love to have picked out the, the brides for your boys? <laughs> but you know, we can't do it. They told me to bug off. They wanted to make their own choice. And all I could do was stand off and pray. Beth, you better pray for her. There's somebody out there. God's getting ready for her. Do you understand that? <laughs> and uh, you better pray because you can't pick the son-in-law or the daughter-in-law. But God has issued the invitation. The bride has come. We're ready. And now there's going to be a supper. I think the supper is the battle of Armageddon. I think it's a great feast. That's what I think. I believe that the great battle is... Look in Revelation 21. Revelation 21, verses 9 and 10. One of the seven angels who had the seven bulls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me and said, Come, I will show you the what? The bride, the lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. I believe the marriage takes place and then the marriage supper. What's the next thing? There is the battle of Armageddon. And I believe that God deposits us and places us and makes heaven our home. And then the battle starts and that's the celebration. It's like a great feast. Even Isaiah spoke of that. The great feast was like a great battle. And so the guests are called and all of the saints of all the ages are there to gather around and watch as the supper, the marriage supper of the Lamb takes place. These are the true sayings of God. And the called reflects something else about the nature of God that is very important. The called reflect His will. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Folks, God has a place in glory for every age. His church, Israel, all the saints, God has a place in heaven. And the called who are not in the body are there to gather around and witness the great marriage supper. And I think that we'll have, that'll be our home, the heavenly new Jerusalem. And we'll have access to watch what God does as he puts an end to, the, to sin, as he puts an end to war, as he puts an end in the events that happen now from verse 11 on in this chapter. God is not willing that any should perish. There's a great argument going on among Southern Baptists today regarding election and the will of God and the will of man. And somebody says, do you believe in election? I certainly do. Do you believe in the will of man? I certainly do. Can you believe in both? Yes, you certainly can. I believe God has his will and God has his plan and I have my choice and God works out so that I choose what he wants and he's working in my life and working in your life if you're halfway committed to him so that you and I can reflect his will. And folks out of every age who respond to whatever God's plan of redemption is in that way will be guests at the marriage supper. And that is why all nature rises to praise all the universe rises to praise as God puts an end to war and Christ comes back in the rest of this chapter. When I was married in 1959, I graduated from college and spent a year before I went anywhere else. I spent a year in youth evangelism. I had an old broken down Oldsmobile it was blue on the top and white on the bottom and red on the inside. It got about 25 miles to a quarter hall. 
I didn't have any evangelistic association. I didn't have any radio program. I didn't have any home address to send your cards and letters to. I didn't have any network. I didn't have any meetings lined up, except I had a revival in North Florida. And I went up there and preached. And, and for the next 10 months, God kept a chain. It just, it was, in, it was absolutely incredible. One church would hear, and then I'd go over to that church, and I was my promoter. I was my public relations man. I was my chief counselor. I printed up signs. I called my crusades the Youth and Life Crusades. And uh, here, Evangelist Mark Court. Somebody brought me one of those the other day from 1959. Somebody gave me one of those. I should put that up somewhere. And uh, boy, I was a hot shot. I had a big roach in front of my hair. I was young. I didn't have any heart trouble, nose trouble, mouth trouble, throat trouble. I sang when they needed somebody to sing. I played the trumpet when they needed somebody to play the trumpet. I preached whenever I had a chance to preach. And I was up in New Brunswick, Canada. And the old boy said, we don't have any ushers at this church. You have to take the offering. And I had to take the offering too. And up there they had an old pump organ and I can remember playing Jesus is all the world to me, pumping with my feet, playing the chords with my left hand and the trumpet with my right hand. And I thought I was a hot shot. If you did that today, they'd commit you to somewhere. And Shirley was finishing nurses training and the time came back for me to end my evangelistic tour. I'd run out of love offerings to be honest with you. <laughs> And the time had come for us to be married in November of that year. I graduated in January. And I'll never forget when I arrived at that nurse's residence and there was a big balcony out in the lobby area and all those student nurses, a hundred of them or so, were out there to see this young evangelist come back to claim his bride. I'll never forget, I parked that thing as fast as I could, that old car out front, I ran up those steps and she was inside waiting. And when I ran, I wrapped my arms around her. And I want to tell you, there wasn't a marriage supper, but there was a marriage feast right then. It was a sweet one. And all the nurses around clapped and applauded. They thought that was just great. We put on a great show. And I didn't let them down. They got their money's worth and more. And one of these days when the church has made herself ready, when sin is done, when life is done and sorrow is finished and the presence and the power of sin have been broken forever and we've stood at the judgment seat of Christ and he's looked at us and we've heard him say, well done thou good and faithful servant, enter thou into the joy of the Lord. All heaven will resound. All heaven will clap. All heaven will praise. All heaven will joy. All heaven will rejoice. All heaven will hallelujah because the bride has made herself ready. Such is the eye of the bridegroom and the eye of the father in preparing his bride. And that is why I have for you one main goal, that the church would reflect his holiness and his faithfulness and his goodness and his mercy to the world. Would you do it? Would you be that kind of bride? Let's stand in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank and praise you for this great passage which gives us hope that the coming of Christ is indeed the blessed hope of the church, as Paul told Titus. 
If there's anyone in this building that doesn't know Jesus, draw them to thyself. If there are those who want to be a part of this local church, which is a part of that huge bride you're building until Jesus comes, call them to come forward and yield themselves for membership here to serve you. If there are those who are not reflecting your glory or your holiness or your faithfulness, oh God, or your blessed will for us, call us to yourself today in Jesus' name. Amen.